Quick question for you. Are you a Federal Access member yet? If you're a government contractor, you need a Federal Access account. You can get started today with a free membership. Just visit federal-access.com forward slash game changers. Free members get access to about 20 documents and templates as well as our video training playbooks. More importantly, this gets you in the RSM Federal ecosystem and makes you part of our community. So go grab your free account today at federal-access.com forward slash game changers. Now let's hop into this episode. Welcome to Game Changers for Government Contractors. Game Changers is dedicated to helping you position for and win more government contracts. And now your hosts, Josh and Mike. Hey everybody, Michael Lejeune here and I'll be your host today on Game Changers. And we have one of my favorite guests for you today. Her name is Maria Panicelli and she is from Cohen Seclius, a, a government law firm there in in. Uh, in works out of the D.C. area, but I think you're located out of Philadelphia, right? We are. The firm's headquarters in Philadelphia, and I split my time between our Philadelphia and uh, D.C. offices. Awesome. Good stuff. I, I once, when I first started working in government, I was living in St. Louis, and I ran an office out of D.C., so a little bit longer commute than you, but uh, <laughs> I, I, I totally get that. So so welcome, Maria. You know, for those that don't know you, I'd love for you to take a quick minute or two, tell everybody about yourself and a little bit about what you do there. Sure. My name is Maria Panicelli, as Michael said, and I am a partner in my firm's uh, con- uh, government contracting group, um, which means I focus my practice exclusively on all things relating to federal contracting. So I advise clients throughout the entire life cycle of their contracts with the federal government, uh, starting at the pre-award proposal stage, interpreting solicitations, etc., through any bid protests that may arise, whether, you know, asserting or defending those bid protests. Then, of course, through actual contract performance, uh, a lot of times that involves performance counseling or compliance counseling. We also do a lot with subcontract negotiation, formation, drafting, and any, uh, you know, negotiation or resolution of subcontractor disputes. Um, And then all the way through dispute resolution with the government, um, including REAs, requests for equitable adjustment, or claims, claims litigation, and appeals. Um, Another big part of what I do is the small business procurement piece of the federal government uh, contracting law. Um, And that, of course, involves the SBA and the VA's uh, various small business programs, um, helping clients with eligibility analyses, affiliation analyses, certification, size and status protests, teaming, joint venturing, mentor protege, you name it, we probably do it. Um, And that's kind of going to be the the stuff that I'm touching on today in what we talk about. Yeah. And yeah, I always stress this when I when I bring you on here and and I'll do it again today for folks. When you are looking for an attorney and you're a government contractor, you don't go and talk to the person who does your will or that kind of stuff for powers of attorney. You you get Maria. <laughs> you know, you, you get her. I mean, look at what she just went through and all the things. And again, I think a lot of people, when they think government, they think attorney, their only focus is when they're in trouble, which is typically uh, they've either done something wrong or they're in a situation where they need to protest something. And as you outlined before, there's so many other reasons to have a good relationship with an attorney or a law firm uh, like yours. And so I, I highly recommend that that people be proactive in developing that relationship before you get in trouble, before you have those problems. And so 
obviously Maria is on here because she's somebody I recommend. So feel free to reach out to her and, and connect before you wind up in trouble <laughs> and need her. You know, that that's always a, a good rule in, in my book. So today we're going to be talking about some proposed rule changes to the SDVOSB. And uh, I think we'll just dive right in. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what some of those changes are? And I know, and before I, I let you answer that, you know, this is a podcast you know, you could be listening to this two years after we record it. So these could be these rules could be in effect. So I always want to put that out there at the beginning. Um, look at the recording when it was. Uh, she's going to talk about what these rule changes are, when they're supposed to be proposed and when they might be final. So uh, just take that with a grain of salt as you're listening to this today. So so what are the changes that we're going to talk about today? Sure. We are going to be talking about the proposed changes that have been issued by both the Department of Veterans Affairs and the Small Business Administration, the SBA, uh, that kind of overhaul the way that they look at the eligibility of veteran-owned businesses and service-disabled veteran-owned businesses. Uh, in particular, there's been some major changes, and we'll talk about, I guess, as we go forward, the reason for those changes, but there's been some major changes in the way that uh, they're going to consider ownership and control. Um, and for those of you who have ever had any dealings with the VA or have ever been involved in any size or status protest or anything really involving an a, a eligibility or affiliation and control analysis, you know that ownership and control are two of the primary things that the, the programs look at to see whether or not you are an eligible company and can get VOSB or SDVOSB status. So these are very important changes that are currently proposed uh, in the system. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people bring those up to me when I'm talking to them and I say, you know, these are there to protect, you know, the integrity of those programs as much as anything, but to protect you from somebody else who's not using. Because we, we've heard so many times where somebody says, well, that person is a disabled veteran, but they're really not involved in the business and they're trying to run it this way or that way. And, and so, yeah, it creates a lot of chaos in the market for sure. So why don't you tell us a little bit about, you know, why these changes are being made? I know you kind of led into that, but why don't we dive into that? Sure. And it's uh, actually a, a fairly long <laughs> and, um, you know, tortured history for the veterans who have had to go through this. Um, to fully understand why these revisions are being made, it's kind of important to understand, I guess, the history and the context of the, the VOSB and STVOSB programs and the rules um, and kind of where they came from. Originally, eligibility of service-disabled veteran-owned small business companies was decided by the SBA and the SBA alone. Now, that might seem unusual and um, unexpected for those of you who have dealt with the more modern programs. Um, and that's because around 2010, the Department of Veterans Affairs initiated its own verification process. Uh, under that process, it was going to go ahead and verify uh, veteran-owned small businesses and service-disabled veteran-owned small businesses in connection with its own separate veteran-owned small business program. So the driving force behind this was the VA's Vet First program, uh, and the purpose of that was to increase opportunities for VOSBs and STVOSBs. I guess there was a little bit of tension. Um, they didn't think that maybe enough opportunities were being driven towards veteran-owned and service-disabled veteran-owned businesses. So definitely a wonderful purpose. Uh, so in theory, it was great that the VA kind of established this second program um, and that they were trying to drive more business veterans way. The problem was that in reality, while the, you know, there was a great noble purpose behind trying to create this dual track system, 
the creation also caused a great deal of confusion and inconsistency. So by way of kind of further explanation, the VA program dealt with both SDVOSBs and VOSBs. SBA program dealt with only SDVOSBs. So right off the bat there, there's some confusion about what's covered under each program. Also a little bit of different lingo. VA program refers to the companies as VOSBs, better known small business, or SDVOSBs, service disabled, better known small business. But sometimes the SBA regs refer to it as SDVOSBCs. Uh, service disabled veteran owned small business concerns. Now, a lot of people use the lingo interchangeably and people who are in the know, you know, know what the terms mean and know that they're the same. But again, for people just getting into the industry, veterans who are, you know, just getting the company started, that created confusion. But that's kind of only the, the beginning of the problem. Um, there were also problems in terms of the fact that there were two different sets of regulations, um, and that resulted in a lot of confusion about definitions. Uh, take, for example, an SDVOSB construction contractor that regularly performed construction work for the Army Corps of Engineers um, or for the GSA, and also for the Veterans uh, Department of Veterans Affairs itself. If the contractor wanted to be eligible for SDVOSB set-asides issued by all three agencies, there was no you know, consolidated or uniform way of making that happen. Uh, the contractor would instead have to self-certify uh, in, for instance, SAM, System for Award Management, and in SBA's Dynamic Small Business Search as an SDVOSB. Now, that would get them uh, you know, registered and eligible for SDVOSB set-asides issued by, using the example I just gave, uh, the core and GSA. But it's not enough uh, to get, wouldn't have been enough to get them certified in the VetBiz database so that they could be eligible for VA contracts. And that's because there was a whole different application process and the regulations governing the definitions that kind of informed that eligibility process and that verification process were different. Um, the biggest problem was that the eligibility requirements uh, regarding ownership and control, again, hearkening back to today's theme, were a little bit different. Um, the SBA kind of started with no regulatory definition concerning ownership. When presented with a legal dispute where it had to determine the meaning of what unconditional ownership was for SDVOSBs, the agency, and again, this is the SBA, um, kind of created a very demanding framework, a very high standard for what would be considered unconditional control. And what they said in a case all the way back in 2006 was that unconditional automatically means no conditions or limitations, uh, no conditions or limitations upon an individual's present or immediate right to exercise full control and ownership of the concern. So that sounds pretty harsh, right? You can't get away with really putting any provisions in your corporate governance documents that could cast any shadow or you know any question onto ownership. Now contrast that with what went on on the VA track. Um, a couple years ago, in a case that uh, my firm was actually intimately involved in, um, we dealt with the unconditional ownership issue in a court or in, before the Court of Federal Claims in a case called Miles Construction. Um, there, the court found that basically certain right of first refusals that were in the corporate documents did not render the control that the veteran had con conditional. In other words, they said even with the rights of first refusal that you have in your documents, 
you know what, that's still unconditional control because that's a commercially practical provision. So you had this split, and a lot of people thought that, oh, now that the Miles construction case is out there, that's the way it's going to be for both the SBA definition and the VA definition. Um, you know, it's got to be unconditional control, but any commercially practical provisions that you have in there, that's not really going to cast any doubt on unconditional control. You're still going to be eligible. Um, in fact, after Miles, the VA changed its policy on how regulations were going to be interpreted. The VA took the position that transfer restrictions on ownership that were a part of normal commercial dealings or AOK, they weren't going to have any problem or, you know, create any problem, I should say, with regard to the conditionality of ownership. And so everyone thought that going forward, it was going to be a much uh, looser standard, both for the SBA and the VA. But then recently, there was a case that made it obvious that that was not going to be true. Um, there was a case called Veterans Contracting Group, um, which involved a status protest filed against a company called Veterans Contracting Group. And it challenged uh, their SDVOSB set-aside, saying that they weren't eligible um, because of the fact that they had certain provisions in their uh, shareholders agreement, specifically that the owner's heirs could not freely convey or transfer the stock. Uh, the SBA took the position that these provisions constituted significant restrictions on ownership, therefore making it conditional, therefore the owner was no longer eligible. Um, after a long and tortured procedural history, which I won't get into, this ended up before the Court of Federal Claims, and the Court of Federal Claims kind of recognized that this might be an unfair result, but kind of said, we've got no choice. Uh, I'm sorry, the Miles line of cases that's got a looser definition of what unconditional control is, well, those are under the VA regulations. But this case, the Veterans Contracting Group case, that's under the SBA regs. And unfortunately, you guys, they're not the same. They're two different programs, and there are differences between them. So they basically said, sorry, VA regulations are irrelevant for purposes of analyzing eligibility under the SBA regs. Um, and because of that, they found that the owner did not unconditionally control his company and that they were actually ineligible. So they got booted out of the, the SBA, I'm sorry, the SDVOSB program run by the SBA. Now, that being said, even the court recognized that this was kind of ridiculous. The court called the outcome perverse and draconian, um, but said that it was sorry it had no choice but in favor to rule but to rule in favor of the SBA and deny the eligibility. Um, this case made it really glaringly obvious to anyone who follows these types of uh, you know, developments, anyone who's in the GovCon world uh, who works with SDVSBs like I and my colleagues do, that this dual eligibility system was just not going to be workable going forward. Uh, a contractor could be eligible for one program and be excluded from the other or vice versa. Regulations that are written similarly were interpreted in wildly different ways. Um, it really seemed kind of arbitrary and capricious. And the whole system, which was meant, you know, reminded of the whole purpose uh, that you're trying to get SDVOSBs and VOSB more work, uh, a program that was supposed to be designed to help these veteran-owned companies was really creating confusion, frustration, uncertainty, and causing a lot of these companies to incur huge legal bills trying to argue about issues that you know were really unclear. And there was no established case law because of the differentiation between these two systems. So it really wasn't good for anyone, let alone veteran contractors, uh, who the Vets First program was designed to help in the first place. So that's why they decided to go ahead and start thinking about changing these regulations. Yeah, and 
like you said, there, there's a long explanation, but that's the full explanation of what happened. And you learn a little bit. Uh, you may, if you're listening to this, you may have to go back and listen to that a couple of times to get all of the nuances of what has transpired to get us here. And, you know, I take away something new every time you and I talk about this. And for me, I, I see clients go through this all the time where usually when somebody first contacts me and they say, oh, yeah, we're SDVSB and I, and I start grilling them a little bit. They say, well, I mean, I'm a service disabled veteran. What more do I need to do? And I'm like, oh, man, you, you haven't even scratched the surface <laughs> of what you need to do. Have you gone right. to, the, you know, back in the day, have you gone to the SBA? Have you gone to the VA? Have you and like, oh, no, I just, you know, when I was. You know, entering my information in SAM, I entered that I was service disabled, you know, and they think that's it. And then they don't really think about all of the the topics you were bringing up, you know, like what's in their operating agreement or any of those types of things. Um, even like you were talking about stock and transferable stock and things like that. They don't think about a lot of these things that could disqualify them for one program, even though they won't be for another program. So it, it, You've got to look at it and say this is like a lot of government things that are so confusing, the left hand not talking to the right. So so we, we know what's confusing. So based on that, what's actually being done about it in these proposed rule changes? So it started all the way back in 2017. Basically, there's been complaints about this dual uh, eligibility, this dual track system for quite some time. Um, and finally, Congress decided that it had to act. I think this veterans contracting group case that we talked about was a big catalyst for that. So as part of the National Defense Authorization Act, NDAA, of 2017, Congress said, all right, that's it. Let's see what we can do to remedy this problem. And as part of the NDAA set 2017, they provided a statutory definition of ownership and control and basically said, look, this is going to be used for all SDVOSBs. In other words, VA, SBA, we don't care. We want one unified definition, one unified regulation that the courts can argue about. The courts can, you know, decide how to interpret it, but then it's going to apply to both programs so that there's more consistency. Um, so specifically for those of you who are nerds and want to go check where it is, it's the National Defense Authority. Authorization Act for fiscal year 2017, section 1832. Uh, and it amends the SBA's charter, it amends the Small Business Act, and it gives the specific definitions that are going to be used going forward for ownership and control. Um, and they last about two pages, so I'm not going to read them verbatim. Um, and I'm, I'll get in in a second to, uh, you know, what the specific changes are. But generally, what it did was lay out what had kind of been codified by case law before and kind of leaned more towards the VA side. Um, so with that, the NDAA left it that, all right, now it's time for the SBA and the VA to go in and change their own regulations and kind of figure out what they want to do to implement what we said they have to do under the NDAA. So that kind of brings us up to the, the present. What happened then was that in January of this year, January 2018, both the VA and the SBA issued proposed rules relating to the NDAA statutory requirements. Uh, these rules were aimed at adopting the uniform definition for VOSBs and STVOSBs. Um, and basically the VA's rule came first. Uh, that was published in, uh, ja oh, I'm sorry, on January 19th, I'm sorry, January 10th, 2018, uh, in Federal Register Volume 83, Number 7. 
Um, and what that did was consistent with what the NDAA said it had to do. The VA uh, admitted, all right, fine, we're not going to be the, the ruling agency that talks about ownership and control anymore. In other words, that's not our purview. There's one consolidated definition, and the SBA is going to be the arbiter and the drafter of that definition. So the VA's proposed rule basically said it was going to eliminate the sections of the VA regulations dealing with ownership and control. So for those of you who are familiar with the regs, that means 13 CFR 74.3 and 74.4. They're the sections dealing with ownership and control, respectively. Um, also, there were going to be some changes to 38 CFR 74.1, which is where all the definitions about ownership and control are. Uh, the VA kind of in this proposed rule, this January 10th Federal Register entry, basically appears to be removing all references to the competing definitions of ownership and control promulgated by the VA up until that time. So after that, uh, on January 29th, 2018, so you know, roughly two weeks after the VA issued its proposed rule, the SBA issued its proposed rule. Uh, the SBA's proposal is consistent with the VA's proposal, basically says that pursuant to the directives of the National Defense Act authorization, it's going to be the agency that issues regulations providing one consolidated definition of ownership and control for VOSB and SDVOSB concerns. Uh, it goes so far as to make it explicit that that definition is going to uh, apply to both the VA verification process and the uh, Vets First contracting, excuse me, contracting program procurements. So that basically means, for those of you who are paying attention, the former VA Vet Biz program um, and all other gov government acquisitions which require self-certification, which is the SBA's program. So those two rules kind of are the next step forward of what the NDAA said, which was let's establish one common definition um, and one common way of looking at ownership and control. Uh, and then it gave a bunch of specific examples. Do you see any downsides to the way they have proposed this? Yeah, I think there are both good things and, and bad things. So, for example, um, like I said, the changes relate mostly to ownership and control. With regard to ownership, good things, uh, it retains the general requirement that SDVOSBs be unconditionally and directly owned by one or more service veterans. Good thing, it carves out uh, an exception for employee stock ownership plans, but bad thing, uh, it only carves that exception out for public companies. Um, and I think most people who do business with SDVOSB companies would admit or agree that there aren't a whole lot of publicly traded SDVOSB companies. So, um, you know, people have been clamoring for that employee stock ownership plan exception for a while. Uh, I guess they heard us but didn't hear loudly enough that it should apply across the board and not just to publicly owned companies. Um, they also carved out an exception for spouses. In other words, spouses can own a company, um, spouses of service disabled veteran owned, um, can own a company, uh, and it can still be deemed an SDVOSB company, but only in cases where spouses have 100% service-connected disability uh, issues or have died a result of the disability. I think that's good, but I think there is... Uh, I will say a likelihood of confusion going forward and how that's going to be applied. Um, I think there's going to be issues about, you know, how you really look into how a spouse is owning and controlling the company in the case of a death, etc. Um, it also adds some rules that I think are good in terms of um, vets' ability to share in profits. Uh, as a rule that the veteran owner has to be uh, sharing in profits 
uh, to the extent commensurate with its interest in the company. So in other words, considering that a vet has to own at least 51% of a company for it to be an SDVOSB, that vet's going to be getting at least 51% of the profits. If they own a higher percentage of the company, they're going to be getting more. Um, on the control side, uh, it retains the requirement that the management and daily business operations of the concern be controlled by one or more service-disabled vets. Uh, and it defines daily business operations. I think that's a good thing because there used to be some confusion about that. Um, also gives some guidance about how uh, it's going to be determined if a vet is controlling a board of directors. Again, a good thing. Um, there is an exception that in the case of a vet with a severe disability, the spouse or caregiver may control the company. That, I think, in a vacuum is a good thing. Again, I think the problems or the downside of that is going to be how you implement that or, you know, how you police that, how you can tell if, uh, you know, someone's controlling the company, if they are a spouse or a caregiver. Um, I think also... Um, Perhaps in the next round, in the, the final rules, they're going to have to give some thought to clarifying uh, how that's going to jive with the existing case law about someone controlling a company having to have the requisite management experience to supervise other people. In other words, if you have a construction company and it's run by a service-disabled vet uh, who you know has a severe disability and so therefore now the spouse is deemed as controlling that construction company. Well, what if the spouse has never worked in construction in their life? What if the spouse owns a flower shop or um, you know owns a, a truck company uh, or you know owns a paper goods store, etc? Are you still going to hold that spouse or caregiver to the standard that they have to have the knowledge and uh, management experience in the particular industry? to run the company. So I think there's a lot of good things. I think um, there are some bad things in terms of, you know, just making sure it's consistent with existing case law. Um, another thing in that kind of same family uh, in terms of making sure that it's consistent with other case law, um, I think there are, are, are going to be some problems with regard to the rules about uh, companies being co-located. Uh, and also there are some changes regarding the fact that there's going to be a rebuttable presumption that if you don't work within daily commuting distance of the office, you're going to be presumed not to control the company. That's inconsistent with some recent case law that says as long as you can uh, you know, show that you're still tied in with the company, you don't necessarily have to be located there. You can be located remotely. So I think it's – I won't say it's a downside yet. I'll say it's a potential downside that it creates some inconsistencies uh, regarding how to interpret those rules. Um, and finally, I think another potential downside is uh, the fact that while the VA has kind of ceded control over ownership uh, and control issues to the SBA, they're retaining uh, that good character requirement that's always been part of the application process. And uh, whether or not it's because that's the only thing that they're retaining, they seem to have put far more stringent requirements into place regarding that good character um, requirement. Um, it now is going to be uh, stated in the rule that any misrepresentation in the material submitted, even a misrepresentation that's not material to the verification decision is uh, grounds to deny verification. I think that opens up the possibility that small errors 
uh, which happen often, especially in a confusing process such as this, um, you know, might be grounds to deny somebody their application. Um, I think also uh, there are sections that are going to be amended to prevent verification of any business owner that fails to pay financial obligations. Now, I think that makes sense if you've got, you know, $2 million of delinquent taxes, maybe we don't want them in the VA program. But, uh, you know, they, they seem to be defining financial obligations quite broadly. So as of right now, arguably, someone who's in arrears on a guaranteed student loan wouldn't qualify for verification. Um, a lot of people have student loans. I, I think that might be kind of overreaching. Uh, this is something that could make it much harder for an SDVOSB to be verified going forward. Now, all of that being said, I think overall, this is a good thing. I think the changes are being made to hopefully consolidate um, everybody's understanding, make it much more transparent, make it much easier for companies to figure out if they are eligible for verification um, under the both the SVA and the VA program. Um, I think the uh, definition, the way that they've kind of structured it, it tends to lean more towards the the more loose, uh, broader definition that the VA has been using, as opposed to the really strict kind of draconian definition that the SBA has been using. So I think that's a good thing. I think it's really going to come down to, um, you know, which of these changes are maintained in the final version of the rule, and then how the SBA and the VA go about implementing them going forward. Yeah, it, it sounds like just from hearing you talk about it, that this is and I don't want to jinx it in any way. It's far from <laughs> over, right? It's far from over. Like, like there's there's a lot of clarification that's going to happen over the next couple of years. And most likely new case law would pop up, I assume. Somebody's going to challenge certain aspects of this, uh, maybe a lot of different aspects of this. And, to, and then you'll see more changes that, that kind of, you know, just kind of work their way through the system. And I tell people all the time, the government hasn't changed a whole lot in the last 50 years. And one of the big things about that is it moves really slow. So you're talking about the NDAA from 2017. It's almost 2019, right. you know, on, in the, on the calendar as at the time of this recording. And the changes haven't been accepted yet. And, you know, we'll get into when they when we plan to have them accepted. And once they're accepted, that's when we will start to see people, you know, testing the boundaries of it. So, you know, expect over the next couple of years, I assume, uh, people to test the boundaries, people to wind up, you know, in court testing some of this stuff and trying to figure it all out. So it, it does. It sounds like there's some upsides, some downsides. Um, but the biggest thing is, is, you know, like why we're even doing the podcast today for people to be aware of this, you know, just to know this is going on. You know, we, we work with a lot of clients in a lot of the different certifications. So, you know, there's a lot of certifications out there that you can get. And, you know, every few months when you check out the SBA's website, I've noticed changes in the language. So when you get into, you know, the criteria, the eligibility criteria, I'm like, there used to be five sentences or five bullet points under this particular thing, and now there's only four, you know, or the language has been clarified a little bit. So, I mean, that that's a big deal for people to not just assume they qualify for some of these things, but to actually go and do some of this research. And if they, you know, if they're listening to the podcast and they're, you know, their eyes are rolling back in their head because it's just too much, then you get on the phone and call Maria, <laughs> you know, I mean, there's some <laughs> of this stuff that I, I think, oh my gosh, I'm glad there's people that are good at this because I'm not. And I can, I can have somebody explain it to me 
you know, maybe 17 times so that I figure it out. And, you know, that that's why, you know, you and I exist in, in this world to help <laughs> people understand some of this stuff. So so with that, when do you expect to see some some finalized changes on this? So, Michael, that's a really interesting question, um, uh, because if you had asked me a while ago, I would have said summer of 2018. Um, these proposed rules, as I said, there are two separate proposed rules. They were issued mid and late January, uh, respectively. And at the time, they had kind of given indications, uh, you know, comments were due in March. Um, and then usually there's a couple month turnaround and, you know, talking to SBA and VA leaders at various conferences I went to, they were kind of signaling that this was, you know, going to be done over the summer. Um, but, at, you know, it's September now that we're recording this and they haven't made the final changes yet. I just went back and checked this week to make sure that, uh, you know, there wasn't anything that I missed because I monitor these things very carefully. There wasn't. Uh, the changes aren't in effect yet. So I, I think I would say we should expect them soon. Um, I would say that because we're already at the proposed rule stage and I think there was a lot of thought that went into the proposed rule stage. Um, but that being said, for those of you who have done anything with the mentor-protege programs, you'll remember that there was a, a couple year gap in between when the NDAA said that the program should be established and when the program actually was established. I'm hopeful that we'll get an answer and a final rule as of the end of this year, um, you know, hopefully sooner than that. Um, but as you said, even then, the regulations are going to change. Then it's going to be about how people interpret them and how the case law is going forward. So I think for the contractors listening out there today, uh, I know a lot of this can be dense and a lot of it can kind of uh, you know feel like you're, you're back in school doing homework. Um, but the real takeaway uh, about this is you've got to be very careful about your eligibility going forward. Um, things that were okay if you got verified three years ago might not, you know, you might not be an eligible company anymore. So you're going to want to talk to whatever your network is, if that's, uh, you know, a government contracting attorney um, or your local PTAC or, um, you know, a consultant, um, anyone that you've got in your support network. Uh, you know, a lot of times with federal government contracting, uh, Michael and I always say it, it takes a village. Uh, so whoever's on your team, whoever can help you figure out eligibility criteria, uh, I would strongly advise having a government contracting attorney up in that mix because they're going to understand all of the permutations from this rule. But uh, either way, make sure you kind of get a checkup. Make sure that you've got somebody looking at your uh, corporate governance documents, your shareholders agreement, uh, your bylaws, your articles of incorporation, as the case may be, making sure that these rules haven't changed anything, uh, doing kind of an evaluation of your company, making sure that you're going to be able to maintain your eligibility. Um, because uh, I think there are going to be people that just assume that if they were okay two years ago, they're okay now. And that's not necessarily going to be the case. And I would hate to see anybody lose their eligibility simply because they didn't know about the changes that have been made. Yeah. And, you know, I, I always ask for a final word, but I think that was it. That that <laughs> was that was put so well, because I think that is exactly, again, why I wanted to do the podcast to let people know just because you're safe today doesn't mean you're going to be safe once this is done. And that's the biggest fear for most government contractors is you're going along You've positioned for two years on a contract. It finally drops and you realize you're no longer eligible because you didn't fill out the right form or there's there's a there's an area there's one paragraph in a document that disqualifies your company now. You know, how I mean your heart would just sink 
and it's it's very depressing, <laughs> you know, to, to have that happen. And so we don't want that to happen. So the bright side is, you know, you were talking about it taking the village and, you know, bring somebody in your network. And I appreciate you being really humble about that. But but I'm not here to be humble. I, I say just call call Maria. You know, you, you can you can tell from our conversation. She knows what's going on with this. And she can look through that stuff with you and work with you and make sure. Because, again, you know, there's so many big contracts out there. You know, we're on the advisor contract, the VA advisor. Talk about uh, the pain that was. You know, I think the RFP, it it was a a year delay in the RFP based on when we thought it was going to drop. Then it drops. Then we get notified we're a winner. Actually, we got notified of the protest. Then we got notified. Of, of being a winner only to like take another year or two i don't know it's, it seemed like 10 years now and it's they're like oh maybe they'll drop some money this year and and it's just one of those things where any delay that's out there you know can significantly impact your company not just from a revenue standpoint but can you keep people employed because you don't have that revenue coming in, you know, because a lot of people hire with the thoughts of, hey, we're winning this contract. It's going to drop this date. You know, there, there's so many things that this impacts. And so just th- use this as a cautionary tale to get on the phone with Maria and their firm and walk through this to make sure you, you still qualify. So so with that, did I miss any? Is there anything important that we should have thrown out there that we didn't in the closing here? No, I think we've hit it again. I think that the key takeaway is get a checkup, make sure that you're still compliant, make sure that you are still eligible. And then uh, as long as you do that, then you should be good to go and keep winning contracts, award, contract awards. Yeah. Yep. No, great advice. I really appreciate it. I really appreciate you coming on here as always. Uh, you know, and everybody look forward to more podcasts with Maria. And, uh, and I think we're even going to be doing some webinars with you so i'm looking forward to that too so thank you so much for all all that you do for us yeah thanks for having me and thanks everyone for tuning in yeah absolutely thank you all for tuning in today i really appreciate you listening to this episode remember you can find every episode on itunes just look for game changers for government contractors and subscribe to the feed to make sure you get every episode and it's not just on itunes you can go to any podcasting app it's literally i think there's like three or four hundred of them out there and you can find game changers on it and uh, i also want to thank our sponsor for today's episode the federal access program at federal-access.com when you join today you can actually get a free copy of the award-winning government sales manual when you become a member of that and last but not least please be please tune in next time for lessons from our experts on how you can win more government contracts thanks for listening to game changers for government contractors For a full list of episodes and other resources, be sure and check us out on the web at www.rsmfederal.com slash game changers.